so majestic. Wake up, London. It sounds like <laughs> ABBA. Yeah, it does. That, that was the theme to BBC 60 Minutes, composed once again by the great Jeff Wayne. <laughs> yeah, to me, it sounds like what you'd get if ABBA did a cover of Pressure by Billy Joel. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Which should happen. Well, now that's all I want to hear. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> all right, Will, shall we begin? We shall. Welcome to This Is Comp, a series of Discord and Rhyme minisodes where we talk about various artist compilations and box sets, artist by artist, song by song by song. <laughs> Roll call. I'm Chris Willie Williams. I'm Rich Bennell. And I'm Ben Marlin. If you would like early access to these compilation episodes, visit patreon.com slash discordpod, where you can sign up to support Discord and Rhyme with a monthly donation. And thank you to the growing number of people who've signed up. It really helps us a lot. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Today, we are continuing our series on the classic UK compilation, Now That's What I Call Music, with Disc 1, tracks 11 through 16. And before we start, I realize that I haven't asked people in these episodes if they have any personal history with the Now That's What I Call Music series. Do either of you? Because I don't really. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of hard to have a personal history with them. They're just so ubiquitous. Like, they're not really like a personal set of songs. It's like the, the stuff that, you know, was plastered all over the radio. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, that was a pointless question. And, and especially these, a lot of them uh, I'd never heard of, like, even in passing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's nice to discover. Well, there are at least a couple of these that I hadn't heard before that are great in this section. Well, let's get started. All right, we'll start off with a, a nice UK single. This is Kajagugu with Too Shy. Ben, in our last episode, you asked, what's a Lamal? Well, this is a Lamal. <laughs> yellow letters scrolling by on my cathode ray television. <laughs> <laughs> Kajigugu was a band formed in 1982 by Limal the Attention Starved, a pan-dimensional elder god <laughs> known for his chitinous obsidian <laughs> eyes, his pop star ambitions, and his habit of commu communicating displeasure by telepathically awakening and calling forth the dormant wasp larva inside the world's fig newtons. Accurate. While searching for backing <laughs> musicians, Limal's awful, awful fancy was caught by the unsigned UK band Art Nouveau who'd self-released one seven-inch and whose music could be charitably described as Wire or Gang of Four if they were garbage. Here's a snippet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
So, Lamal conscripted the four members of Art Nouveau by hypnotizing them with his flowing head covering that some have referred to as a mullet, <laughs> though it's better described as a writhing blood orgy of anemones and floppy skin tags. The resulting band was named Kajagugu, after a pre-ancient incantation designed to make disc jockeys who announce the band's songs despair of what they're doing with their lives. <laughs> Too Shy was the band's first single, produced by Duran Duran keyboardist Nick Rhodes and Duran Duran producer Colin Thurston. Rhodes famously quipped, We love having Lamal on the mic, because when he is singing, he retracts his countless rows of whirling fangs back inside his slavering maw. <laughs> Tushai hit number one in the UK, but stalled at number five in the US, which infuriated Lamal to the point that the eastern seaboard was pelted by fiery hot hailstones for months afterward. Lamal and the rest of the band parted ways in 1983 for reasons that aren't exactly clear. The story is a lot of he said, shrieking orifices covering the body segments of a non-Euclidean horror set. <laughs> the remaining members of Kajagugu would go on to do nothing of note, and Lamal would go on to further chart success with a synth-pop confection bemoaning the curse of his immortality, the never-ending story. I like the song a lot. <laughs> I like your Dada-esque commentary, Will. <laughs> Dada-gugu. Dada-gugu. <laughs> yeah, I assume that, well, to go into the real origin of the name Kajagugu, I assume that it had some artsy origin, but no, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the sound a baby makes, and yeah. they made it the name of their band. <laughs> Good job, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, too shy. I I've never thought this one was that great, to be honest, but making fun of Kajagugu kind of feels like punching down at this point. Like, yeah. I, I just read that their 2008 reunion album, Gone to the Moon, was released only on MP3 and CDR. In 2008? Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when their bassist, Nick Beggs, was asked about the band's future, he said, well, we reformed and we toured and we recorded an EP and remastered the back catalog. And at that point, I felt that we had done it all, which is about the saddest. He wept because he had no world left to conquer, I think I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Though you mentioned that they didn't do anything in their late period, but I actually, I actually learned some stuff about Nick Beggs from one of our listeners on Twitter. Uh, he's actually had a pretty fruitful late career collaborating with artists like Steve Hackett and Stephen Wilson, who I don't blame you guys for not knowing because they are prog. <laughs> and he's also done a lot of work with the instrument, the Chapman stick, which I would ask producer Mike to talk about if this were one of our album episodes. And it, it's a really interesting instrument that looks like only the fretboard of a guitar. And it can be used to play bass lines, melody lines, and chords simultaneously and transfer them into MIDI, which is pretty cool. That is cool. And I, I've actually, yeah, I've actually brought a clip of Beggs performing a cover of The Rainbow Connection from The Muppet Movie, which makes it the third time The Rainbow Connection has shown up on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, and just as an illustration of the Chapman stick in action. It does kind of sound like the Pure Moods version of Rainbow Connection. It does. <laughs> that is an interesting sound. Mm-hmm. I guess the main point I'm trying to make is that every sound that you're hearing here, like the melody lines, the bass lines, everything, it's all coming from one instrument. This is the whole arrangement comes from this like fretboard looking thing, which is cool. Wow. Yeah, I'll yeah. have to look look more into that. And as for Too Shy, well, I, I don't want to be too down on Lamal in these episodes because he, he really does seem like a decent guy. I haven't read anything bad about him. But my favorite part of the song is the 30 seconds before he shows up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so like like Will said, this song and the parent album White Feathers were produced by Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran and Colin Thurston, who produced the first two Duran Duran albums. And for that reason, he has my heart. <laughs> and as the song opens, it feels like something that could have fit in on their first album in particular. But uh, I, I've just never been in love with the main melody of the song, like the way it kind of feels like 
two songs mashed together, honestly. <laughs> and uh, I was talking with my wife about it, and she compared that effect to Senses Working Overtime by XTC, which feels like three songs mashed together. <laughs> but but that song strings them all together into like this tension release and build. And yeah. I don't know, Too Shy just feels like they flip a switch and it turns into another song. Yeah, X- XTC knew how to sort of ram odd angles of different uh, parts of the song together in ways that somehow seemed logical. Whereas you're right, this just feels sort of haphazardly stapled. Yeah. I feel like I'm overthinking it because it's not a bad song. I don't think it's a failure or anything. It's, it's really popular for a reason, but it's just Mm -hmm. never really worked for me. Yeah, I can, I can hear why. Yeah. Same. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Next song. I I just wonder why every 80s song had to have those atmospheric synth sounds in the background. Oh, I love that. Oh, well, but but go on. No, that that first 30 (laughs) seconds, it's a it's a solid, funky instrumental track that they've just unnecessarily bury in those synth sounds, which are objectively terrible, Rich. (laughs) Uh, Well, if it's objective, can't argue with that. I know it was it's it's hard at any point for artists to swim against the cultural tide. And that's what was happening in the 80s. But I wish some artists had paddled a little bit harder. (laughs) Too Shy, it has a catchy chorus, but kind of annoyingly catchy. Mm -hmm. I know it's an 80s classic that hipsters dance to and all the hair and blah, blah, blah. But I can't picture myself wanting to hear it too often. I'd compare it in that respect to the safety dance, but I don't want to set Rich (laughs) on a murderous rage, at least until I've left the room. So I'll let that one go for now. I'll hold it back until you leave and then just... (laughs) All right. Well, if we've... Thoroughly eviscerated too shy, we'll uh, we'll move on now to Moonlight Shadow by Mike Oldfield. I really like this one. Yeah. And I. And my sword. <laughs> and my Chapman stick. <laughs> Thanks to the strange magic of the Discord and Rhyme randomizer, I ended up being the biggest prog nerd on today's panel by some distance. So (laughs) I got assigned to talk about Mike Oldfield by default, even though I've never really listened to much of his music other than his 1973 album, Tubular Bells, which we covered back in our Pure Mood series. And it turns out that I should have been listening to him all along because like Moonlight Shadow is one of those where have you been all my life songs. This is so good. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard this song before, which might surprise some of our international listeners because it hit number four on UK singles and topped the charts all over the world, including in Spain, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Australia, 
Italy, Ireland, Norway, Sweden, and Poland. But this is an American podcast, damn it. And America <laughs> apparently had no interest in this beautiful, beautiful song. We were too busy eating at Hardee's. <laughs> <laughs> or Carl's Jr. when I was a kid. I was, in, I was on the west side of this here country. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm in Hardee's territory now. <laughs> we'll re-edit it for the West Coast feed. <laughs> <laughs> so as we talked about back in the aforementioned Pure Mood series, the Tubular Bells album is an odd, wonderful hybrid of prog and new age. And a lot of Oldfield's 70s albums are in a similar vein. But by the 80s, he'd switched things up a bit and started to lean in a more commercial song-based direction to the point where his 1982 song, Family Man, actually became a hit single for Hall and Oates just a year later. Oldfield isn't much of a pop singer, and during this era, he would often hand off lead vocals to various guest vocalists. The lead vocals on Moonlight Shadow are by Scottish vocalist Maggie Riley, who collaborated frequently with Oldfield in the early 80s. She actually sang the original Family Man, and she puts in a really gorgeous performance on this song. The beauty of Riley's vocal stands in stark contrast with the darkness of the song, which is about a woman witnessing the death of her lover. Because of the timing of this song, a lot of people assume that it was about John Lennon. But a lot of the finer details in the lyrics, like the time of day, day of the week, and phase of the moon, don't match up with Lennon's murder. And Oldfield says that his inspiration was actually the Tony Curtis film Houdini, which I haven't seen. So I can't describe it in great detail for you guys. Sorry. <laughs> Nonetheless, Oldfield acknowledges that Lennon's death affected him deeply because he is a human being on this planet Earth. And it may have been a subconscious influence on his songwriting. So as much as I love electronic 80s pop music and the safety dance, Ben... <laughs> the artificiality of the Now compilation can get a bit stifling, and it feels really cleansing and refreshing to hear something as like big and organic as Moonlight Shadow pop out of my speakers. It's, it feels sort of like biting into a fresh heirloom tomato after like eating a bunch of Laffy Taffy or something. <laughs> can we have a clip? You mean the song Laffy Taffy? Yeah. <laughs> sure, here it is. Well, that happened. What do you guys think? <laughs> it's still probably not the worst song on this compilation. <laughs> I really like this. I like the structure more than anything. Uh, I yeah. mean, it's a very pretty song, but there is not a wasted second on this record. You don't even get to breathe between the verse and the chorus or between the chorus and the guitar solo. You have this sort of lightweight, catchy, dreamy pop song that is that has a brutal and ruthless construction to it. I don't know if I could listen to music at this pace on a regular basis, but when I'm just discovering a song and my attention span is at its most fickle and fleeting, this is how you keep me listening because there's no place to get off this song. You start it, you have to finish it. And that's a gutsy production tactic uh, that I really admire. The one thing that bothers me is the lyric 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I know that <laughs> lyrics have to scan, but there's other words out there that they could have jammed in. Anyway, great song, great production. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, Ben. Uh, that like this is a song that just makes you want to listen to it over and over again, and that and that's surprisingly rare for me these days in this like Spotify era when I need to like move on to the next thing that I haven't heard before. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, you're right. I do want to like listen to Moonlight Shadow over and over again. It's just so like full and welcoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, apart from this song, Oldfield's only output that I've heard is Tubular Bells, which Amanda introduced me to a couple years back. 
I can't say I quite love it, but I definitely like its precocious virtuosity and its sense of fun. It feels like Oldfield was influenced as much by the Bonzo dog band as by any scowlingly serious prog band you'd care to name. And I like when the Popeye song shows up at the very end. Yeah. The college hornpipe. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's got a lot of interesting little fun details throughout. So I admire and enjoy Tubular Bells, but I figured that one Oldfield album in my collection was probably sufficient. Moonlight Shadow proved me wrong. As Rich and Ben both said, it's beautiful. And even if the lyrics don't do much for me, and here I have written, and the redundant line, 4 a.m. in the morning, drives me absolutely <laughs> batty. Wow, and I, I, I used to be a copy editor. I feel that yeah. I, I feel <laughs> like I fell asleep at the wheel there. <laughs> I would have drawn a little loop through that with my, with my red pen. <laughs> <laughs> but in spite of that, Riley's snowy cooing of the song's expansive melody is every bit as lovely as more iconic 80s pop songs like Cyndi Lauper's Time After Time or Till Tuesday's Voices Carry. I also rather like the rubbery sound of Old Field's guitar, or one of them, which is plugged directly into the mixing board sans effects. Ah. It gives the song a comforting homemade vibe, like His Name is Alive or someone. So I'm excited to see whether I like Oldfield's other 80s stuff as much as I like this. Well, speaking of, I by the way, I listened to Crises, the album this song came from, and I just I have to report this. Well, well, first off, the whole first side is the title track, which is an only marginally successful attempt to do an updated 80s version of Tubular Bells. It's ah. it's okay. But what made me do a double take on the album was when I hit the song In High Places, which is sung by John Anderson. And you've talked me out of it. <laughs> Could we get much higher? Could we get much lighter? Which Kanye West sampled on his album My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Could we get much higher? So high. Oh my God. <laughs> that's what that is? Yeah, that's John Anderson. <laughs> yeah, you can say a lot of things about Kanye and his, you know, freaking two-hour-long new album, but he is never predictable. <laughs> so, shall we continue talking about my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy? We're going on to Minute Works Down Under next. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Traveling in a fight Trailhead full of zombies. I met a strange lady. She made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, Do you come from a land down under? A women go and men wonder. Can't you hear? Can't you hear the thunder? You better run. You better take cover. I know there's a bit on Family Guy where Peter Griffin is singing this, like, that's all he knows. <laughs> I remember there was the muffin place on uh, The Good Place that was called We Crumb from a Latin Down Under. <laughs> <laughs> I did the song at karaoke once at my graduation party, and I sang each verse to a different person in the audience, and I sang the final verse to producer Mike. And uh, when I got to you better run, you better take cover, you know, producer Mike is a theatrical person, so he ran and took cover. <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. That's great. Yeah, Down Under is probably the highlight of this compilation, with only the safety dance providing any real competition. What, Ben? Ha. <laughs> Certainly this is one of the most popular songs, reaching number one on at least nine countries' charts. 
including the UK and the United States. Men at Work were a quintessentially Australian new wave band formed in 1978, writing songs that sounded vaguely like the Go-Go's, Huey Lewis, and Madness all jamming together. Yeah. It's a very pleasing combination, particularly when you've got the songwriting skills to make that sound your own. On Down Under, Colin Hay's lyrics lean heavily on Australian slang to describe his resentment about the way Aussie culture and identity are being erased by the influx of, of faceless Western corporations and interests who homogenize everything they touch. The song is far from dour, though. Where their countrymen in Midnight Oil often tackle that same issue with pugilistic, unsmiling combativeness, Men at Work possess a lighter, more whimsical, and accessible touch. Here, Hay plays the role of a perplexed Aussie traveler whose interactions with people the world round are drastically limited by those folks' extremely superficial understanding of Australian life and culture. Like the woman who asks him, Do you come from a land down under where beer does flow and men chunder? The whole arrangement effervesces with playfulness, to the point that Greg Ham's flute part was alleged to have been lifted from the melody of a children's song called Kookaburra. And this is where the story gets sad. Kookaburra was written in 1932 by Australian music teacher Marion Sinclair. It became embraced as a song of cultural pride throughout Australia, to the point where it was widely perceived to be a traditional folk song in the public domain. After Sinclair died in 1988, though, the rights to Kookaburra were purchased from her estate for $6,100 Australian by Larrikin Music Publishing. In 2007, Larrikin brought suit against Men at Work because of the similarity between some of Ham's flute part and Kookaburra, a similarity that had apparently gone unnoticed until an Australian quiz show pointed it out. Here's a clip of Kookaburra performed by a man named Bill Staines. Kookaburra sits in an old gum tree. Kookaburra sings in an old gum tree. Kookaburra sings in an old gum tree. Kookaburra loves Kookaburra 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 sits in an old gum tree. That was a number one Australian rock and roll hit. Yeah. So you can hear that, yeah, the down under flute is similar to the kookaburra melody for a few seconds, but it's a simple flourish in down under, not anything close to the main hook. Ham yeah. wasn't even a credited writer on down under. After a lot of litigation, Larrikin was awarded $100,000 and 5% of the song's royalties going forward, and the suit itself cost the band about $4.5 million in legal fees. Ham took the lawsuit extremely hard, saying, I'm terribly disappointed that's the way I'm going to be remembered for copying something. He fell into alcoholism and died of a heart attack in 2012, with his bandmates explicitly blaming the lawsuit and his embarrassment and guilt over it for his death. My God. Yeah. It's a tragic, maddening tale, but one that shouldn't blemish the impact this song had, successfully celebrating a nation's culture and being rallied around for decades by the people it lifts up. Yeah, there are so many little tiny details in this song, and that's only a little piece of it. And to, honestly, to me, it only kind of sounded like that song. But I don't know. I, I didn't compare them side by side. I seem to recall reading that the music publisher didn't even want to present the tablature of the two songs side by side because it wasn't similar enough. They just wanted to make their point by the jury listening that makes me think of, I mean, briefly, uh, that makes me think of uh, British producer Joe Meek in the early 60s who wrote the, the amazing song Telstar, which was, mm -hmm. was a instrumental number one hit. And he yeah. got sued by a French composer, I believe, uh, who had composed a, a movie score and claimed that Meek had ripped him off, even though the French movie had never even played in the UK at that time. So he couldn't have known it. But mm -hmm. it's the court still froze all of Meek's royalties at the time. And 
it gets dark. I mean, he ended up killing himself and his landlady. Uh, and only after that did, did the court rule that he had not stolen the song and then the royalties would have flowed after that. So similar story. And for more about Telstar, listen to Ben's old podcast detours, which I think is still up. Yeah, it's still up. And and thank you, Rich. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. Any chance to plug detours? Yeah, this is first off. I had no idea this was a protest song in its own way, because you're right. It, it's a million years from Midnight Oil. But that's interesting. Yeah. To me, I, I really <laughs> like this song. I don't have a ton to say about it. It is lightweight. It is fun. It's catchy. I like the flute. Mm -hmm. Uh these are likable guys who made a likable song. I'm glad they ended up not just being one hit wonders. Uh, and I'm glad that lead singer Colin Hay ended up making those weird but compelling guest appearances on the TV show Scrubs. Oh, yeah. I like the band's unaffected patriotism here. They're not saying their country is the best. They're not saying their country is the worst. But they are kind of putting across that they love it and all of its quirks. It's endearing. So no bootable offenses here. <laughs> Rich? Yeah, I, I love this song and I, I have a lot to say about it. So let me count the ways. <laughs> well, it's so intricate and carefully crafted and it has a lot of clever little songwriting tricks. And I'm going to go through them bullet by bullet for you. Wow. So Yay. one, the arrangement, it has all sorts of moments that show up only once to texture the song. Like I love the little descending guitar figure after buying bread from a man in Brussels. Do, 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 do. Yeah, there's all sorts of things like that in the song. Second, there's just a great build to the vocal arrangement. Colin Hay sings the first verse in a calm register and the later ones in like this nervous higher register. And when the harmonies come in for the chorus, they're they're more joyous and ebullient each time until they just explode at the end. And, and I love it when songwriters do this kind of thing. But the only other example I can think of off the top of my head is That's All by Genesis, which we're going to be talking about in just a couple of episodes. And Will mentioned the really esoteric Aussie slang in the song. And I, I love the way that Colin opens the song with it. And, and I, don't, I don't mean the Vegemite sandwich. I mean the first line, <laughs> traveling in a fried out combi on a hippie trail head full of zombie, which from pop-up video I learned means that they were driving in a van while really stoned. But they put it in the most Australian terms possible. And I think the, the, the combi is, I believe, an, a Volkswagen van that was only released in Australia. But... I don't know cars very well, but either way, opening the song that way is like really, really disorienting. And to English speaking listeners, it's, it's a really great example of two worlds separated by a common language. <laughs> yeah, So I'm sure that the song initially got people's attention because it's goofy, catchy and super Australian. But uh, to me, it's all of those little details that have helped it stick around in cultural memory. Like it's a silly sounding song, but it's not a novelty song. And as you've said, it's, it's a protest song. Like there's a lot of substance to it underneath the surface because yeah, underpinning like every moment of the song. It's I love it. Uh, I, I didn't really think about what the best song on the now compilation is, Will. But you giving the award to this one made me realize that it's probably this song. I, I think I agree with you. Woo. I win again. <laughs> to hell with you, Marlon. <laughs> yeah, well, the second second place is probably the safety dance. So correct. What? And I'll just add that my parents owned <laughs> Minute Works big hit album Business as Usual. And it's it's actually pretty good. It is. Uh, like, yeah, I wouldn't put it in my like theoretical top hundred albums or anything, but uh, Colin Hay is a legit accomplished songwriter and th there's some good music on there other than the two big hit singles. It's the other one who can it be now? Do, 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 do. Yeah. That's the one which I heard in the grocery the other day. So <laughs> it's still uh, it still resonates, apparently. Mm -hmm. That's the one that I heard all over the place before hearing down under it all. So that might have just been from my dad playing it, though. That is a really memorable saxophone hook. 
Yeah. It is, yes. All right. Well, if we're done with that one, hey, you. What? It's Hey You, Rocksteady Crew by Rocksteady Crew. <laughs> oh, 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 I thought you were calling out to us. Sorry. <laughs> can't tell if that's a Bob O'Reilly sample or just the same synthesizer. <laughs> I think it's just the same synth. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that whoever sounded this chintzy. So I tend to bury my opinions about songs under like seven layers of history and context. So before we get to that, for the sake of mixing it up a bit, I'll get that part out of the way first, because the song is good, but there's really not much to it musically. Hey, you, the Rocksteady crew, it's solid, lightweight, old school hip hop. It's bouncy. It's catchy. It puts a smile on my face. It's been stuck in my head for days. I was tossing (laughs) and turning all morning to this with like, hey, you, the Rocksteady crew bouncing around in my head. (laughs) But the genre would quickly evolve into something much more musically and lyrically substantial as MCs experimented with more complex rhymes and DJs began to redefine the role of a producer in general. What's more interesting about this song is the Rocksteady crew themselves. First off, Rocksteady Crew isn't just one crew. It's a whole franchise with chapters spanning multiple cities. These crews are most famous for b-boying, which is more popularly known as breakdancing by us white people. And according to legend, to join a crew, you had to outdance an incumbent member of that crew. So get practicing, Ben. (laughs) I'll take on either of you. The original version of Rocksteady was formed in New York City's Bronx Borough in 1977 by Jimmy D, JoJo, and Easy Mike. The Rocksteady crew we hear on this song formed in Manhattan in 1979 and consisted of founder Crazy Legs, Prince Ken Swift, Buck Four, Kuriaki, and Doze, all B-boys, as well as lead vocalist Daisy Castro, also known as Baby Love. The crew first received mainstream exposure when the New York Times covered a battle against rival B-boys, the Dynamic Rockers, at New York's Lincoln Center. Before too long, Rocksteady was making all sorts of media appearances, including the classic graffiti documentary Style Wars, The music video for Malcolm McLaren's Buffalo Gals. So there's Malcolm McLaren again, guys. (laughs) Late Night with David Letterman. And he was apparently an asshole, by the way. (laughs) And biggest of all, the feature film and cultural phenomenon Flashdance, in which they appear in the finale. And they also gained some cred in the burgeoning hip-hop community when legendary DJ, MC, and producer Africa Bambata inducted them into his musical and cultural collective, The Zulu Nation. So they were all over the place in the early to mid-80s. Yeah. And this is where the Rocksteady crew got crushed by the wheels of industry, as Heaven 17 would put it. The members of the crew described this period as a continuous blur of fame, everything moving faster than they could keep up. And at one point, they even performed for Queen Elizabeth, who I'm sure still bumps this song in the Royal Lorry. <laughs> hey, you, the Rocksteady 
<laughs> Your Majesty, is that you? <laughs> In the midst of this madness, they were signed by Charisma Records, who brought the crew to a recording studio for an audition, a quote-unquote audition, and asked them to perform some simple freestyles, not knowing that they were being recorded. And I have a clip here from Baby Love describing that. And one day, I'm not kidding, just one day, we're in Boston uh, doing some stuff and practicing and the next thing you know we're in a studio and literally as I recall it other Rocksteady crew members may recall it differently but as I recall it say can you say these words and I said hey you the Rocksteady crew show what you do make a break make a move yeah yeah (laughs) everyone's like I know that song (laughs) (laughs) say the line So then British producers Bud Dixon, Ruza Blue, and Stephen Haig arranged these vocal bits into Hey You, the Rocksteady Crew, and took all of the songwriting credit. Oh, my God. Yep. The single sold 7 million copies, and the members of Rocksteady received about $7,000 apiece by uh, by their estimation, according to Crazy Legs, who called it, quote, a reality check for us that we weren't prepared for, end quote. So, Hey You, the Rocksteady Crew, it's a catchy song, but like so much of music industry history, it's all part of a horrible cycle of exploitation of people of color in the name of capitalism. What say you, gents? I should hate this song. It's it's fast and chaotic and it celebrates moving. <laughs> it's so infectious and catchy and just stuffed with good cheer. It's thin as hell. I don't have a ton to say about this one either, but I truly unironically like this song and I'm, I'm glad I learned about it for this compilation. Will, how about you? Digital. <laughs> yeah. Digital. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Will. everything about this song is adorable. Even Rich's explanation of the ship of Theseus style turnover in the group's roster made me smile. <laughs> well, it's not so much the part about the cruise members landing in the Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster Memorial hall of getting screwed over, but which is obviously unconscionable. But every other aspect of this track makes it perhaps the sweetest hip-hop song ever recorded, right down to the group's name being included as a parenthetical aside in the song title. It sounds like it should be playing over a montage of misunderstood but wholesome youths pitching in to renovate their local rec center. (laughs) And I'm not trying to be condescending about the Rocksteady crew at all. They may make Technotronic sound like the Gravediggers, but they seem like they're having (laughs) loads of fun on Hey You, which in turn makes me happy. Yeah, and in terms of the chart popularity of this song, so like hip hop was on the charts in the UK before in the US because this hit number six in the UK, but didn't register at all in the States. Like uh, hip hop may have originated in the US, but it it didn't make the US top 10 until Run DMC's cover of Walk This Way hit number Mm. four in 1986. So British people were ahead of the curve in that regard. And when I saw the video, when I started the video for this song, I assumed it was going to be like the Malcolm McLaren song from the last one. And it's just so much better. Yeah, it's got a cool video. Baby Love has a, has a lot of energy and you get to see like the I mean, like like pretty much everything visual that you look up about the Rocksteady crew, you get to see some awesome B-boying. Well, now that we've uh, gotten back into the happy vibes, it's time to crush them again with Rod Stewart, Baby Jane.
While he didn't peak artistically until the song Baby Jane, Rodrigo Rod Stewart had already spent decades in the recording industry, building up to his 1983 artistic apotheosis. Stewart came up in the blues clubs of 1960s London, slowly morphing from a harmonica player kind of in the background to the featured singer. He first hit it reasonably big as lead singer of the Jeff Beck group, who played fiery electric blues and whose debut album Truth hit number 15 on the American charts. After Rod left the Jeff Beck group, he embarked on sort of parallel careers in the early 1970s. In one guise, he was lead singer of the hard-drinking, hard-rocking band Faces. In his other guise, he was a solo singer who combined folk, blues, and country in a gentle and rootsy but vocally striking style, usually in collaboration with guitarist Ron Wood. Rod hit huge in 1971 with his album Every Picture Tells a Story and the still ubiquitous number one hit Maggie May. After that, he became a staple on the charts and an instantly recognizable musical icon uh, because of his scratchy and very recognizable voice. Anyway, all of that music was shit. If you're unlucky (laughs) enough to own any of it, throw it out. Rod Stewart didn't become worth a damn until the early 1980s when he began singing catchy, synthesized, trite, direct-to-karaoke dance anthems that (laughs) consistently hit the American top 10. It took a while, but thankfully, Rod finally got there and became the Rod Stewart your grandma knows and loves, (laughs) with huge hits like Young Turks, Some Guys Have All the Luck, Infatuation, and the song we're going to discuss today, Baby Jane, which is fine. Production-wise, Baby Jane, it's like they distilled the 1980s into a single track. You have synthesizers, which are bad, slamming (laughs) electronic drums, and just a general gauziness about the sound. The whole thing is slight. There's no getting around that. But to be fair, it's also propulsive and catchy. And Rod Stewart can sing the fuck out of a song, even a mediocre song. If Baby Jane comes on the radio, I'm not going to rush over and smash it with a big Gallagher hammer, which I do have. But it's also (laughs) not going to make me throw out my old copy of Every Picture Tells a Story. Well, again, if I buy a new one, I won't throw that one out. I was always wondering what that big hammer was in the background of your Zoom, Ben. Uh, Now I know. (laughs) See that you don't find out. And all those watermelons. (laughs) Well, first off, Ben, you skipped right over Do You Think I'm Sexy in your history. But yeah, I was trying to figure out what my problem was with later Rod Stewart because it's such a common gag to say that he became irreversibly terrible somewhere around 1973 or 74, uh, unless you're Ben, apparently. (laughs) Uh, And I wanted to figure out exactly what it was that changed because he's so, so great on those early solo albums. And when he sang for the Faces and the Jeff Beck group. And uh, is it Faces, Ben? Are they one of those bands? I I think it's Faces, like Eagles. Or Beatles. Or Sparks. (laughs) Beatles. But I was thinking about it, and I think the answer is that nothing about him really changed. He was just very ill-equipped to adapt to the wider changes in popular music that started around the mid-70s. Like, his voice sounds great belting out music that's, like, fundamentally very ragged and imprecise, like like on those um, Jeff Beck albums, but... 
when you get to the late 70s and early 80s, that same vocal approach just to me just sounds smeary and garish singing genres like disco and synth pop that are like extremely clean, precise and intricate. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about Baby Jane. I, I don't hate it. It's actually grown on me a little bit in the course of listening to it over and over again for this episode. I don't know if that's Stockholm syndrome or what. But either way, Rod has a great voice, but it, to me, it's just nails on a chalkboard singing music like this. And that kind of describes a lot of his 80s music to me. Yeah. And incidentally, you mentioned Young Turks, and I, I really like that song. It's because it's really simple, clean and minimal. And uh, honestly, Rod's voice sounds pretty great on it. Uh, it. It makes me wish more of his other later music was like that. Yeah, I think I like what you said about him. And, and I've been thinking about it. He's a lot like Elvis in that. He could just nail any song, but he had no ambition. And so I think when people were pulling him in a, a good like rock and bluesy direction in the beginning, he did a great job singing great music. And then but he didn't really care about, you know, continuing to make really good music. He just kind of followed trends and found that he could make a lot of money doing this other mm -hmm. thing. So he was fine with that. He didn't care that much. Well, I will say that I skipped around a little bit on this song's parent album, Body Wishes, and Baby Jane is way better than the song Ghetto Blaster, which is about the starving children in Ethiopia. Oh, oh my. Yes, what? he has a what? song called Ghetto huh? Blaster. But what does a ghetto, what does that even have to do with? I don't know. He doesn't even say I, it in the song. It's just called Ghetto Blaster. We're going to wrap this up right now so I can go listen to that. Um, this has been Discord and Rhyme. <laughs> I'll put a clip right here for the listeners so they can judge for themselves. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I've just got to come back from that for a second. <laughs> Rod Stewart is one of those artists who I branded as irretrievably lame when I was in my teens, because when your musical tastes are first solidifying, it's not just about discovering artists you love, but violently rejecting those you don't. <laughs> as I began staring down middle age, though, it was an unexpected, unexpected pleasure to lay those knee-jerk reactions aside and discover that there actually are some songs I like by, say, Phil Collins or Bruce Hornsby or the ex-Mr. Rachel Hunter here. It's free <laughs> to admit that. She, she's got it going on. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I was sort of hoping you would do that. The reason I say this is so you know I'm not just coming from an antagonistic mindset of Rod Stewart is always lousy when I say this song is lousy. I'm coming from a mindset of Young Turks is great, even Downtown Train is nice, but this one is a torporific stink pot. <laughs> it seems a tad smug for Rod to write a chorus whose lyrics can't help but evoke Stevie Wonder's I believe, parentheses, when I fall in love. Does mm. Rod really want to invite that comparison? Does he think that this loping, forgettable adult contemporary pap would be deemed the winner if those two songs were judged against one another? And beyond the ill-advised lyrical decisions, it's just a forgettable nothing of a tune. It's the sound of sucking dishwater out of a Brillo pad. <laughs> I will say that I just called to say I love you and have I told you lately that I love you are probably about equal in my mind. Oh, that one's fair. Will, will I like that you've come around to Rod Stewart at least a little bit. Not little this bit. song, but because for all I joke, I mean, he really was great in the beginning. And, and I think he really... He actually did peak with the Jeff Beck group. And mm -hmm. hopefully one day we can do that album on this, on uh, Discord and Rhyme. Yeah, I listened to, uh, are you thinking, is it Truth? Is that the name of the album? Yeah. Yeah, I got, I got into that one relatively recently. And that's what completely changed my mind on Rod Stewart. He is unbelievable on that one. Yeah. I'll have to hear that.
we're going to wrap this mess up with Paul Young. <laughs> Wherever I lay my hat, parentheses, that's my home. You had romance. Did you break it by chance over me? It's so I'd like for you to know that I'm not worth it. You. That fretless bass just sounds like an elephant messing around <laughs> with a saxophone or something. Just like Rodney Rod Stewart. Paul Young was a British singer who did a lot of time in R&B clubs in England before he became a big deal commercially. But starting in the early 1980s, the public slowly caught on to his good looks, which even transcended the mullet era, and his tasteful and legitimately soulful voice. In the mid-1980s, Young had three number one albums in Britain, five top 10 British singles, and nine other top 40 British singles, including his cover of Hall & Oates's Every Time You Go Away, which went to number one in the United States, an important country. That's an amazing <laughs> run for any artist. Even closer to my heart, Paul Young is the guy who sang the opening lines of Band-Aid's 1984 smash charity single, Do They Know It's Christmas? It's Christmas time. He's the one who's not Boy George, and he's not the one who tells you to thank God that it's Africans who are starving at Christmas time instead of you, which was Bono reading my diary there. Anyway, I really love that song, and, and Paul Young is a good part of it. Bafflingly, though, one of Paul's number one British hits was his cover of an old Motown song, Wherever I Lay My Hat parentheses, that's my home, close parentheses. Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home was written in the early 1960s uh, by, three Motown, uh, by three Motown regulars, Marvin Gaye, Barrett Strong, and Norman Whitfield. Gaye recorded the song in 1962, and it went on one of his albums, but it wasn't considered single material, at least until 1969 when Motown put it on the B-side of Gaye's classic single, Too Busy Thinking About My Baby. Frankly, even that was too good for the song. It's an aggressively mediocre composition, and even all the talent on the Motown production line, and even a singer like Marvin Gaye could not make it interesting. Fast forward to 2008 when Motown released its 10-disc box set, Motown The Complete Number Ones, which included any song that reached number one on the chart, even songs that only went to number one in cover versions by non-Motown artists decades later which includes Paul Young's 1983 British number one hit cover of Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home. That's how Marvin Gaye's original non-hit, non-good version of Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home ended up on a box set alongside classics like Where Did Our Love Go, I Second That Emotion, and I Want You Back. 
For more on Motown, the complete number ones, we did a whole series of comp episodes on that. So you can go back into our archive and find those. I think this podcast hate for the original wherever I lay my hat. That's my home is hilarious. Oh, God. Yeah. For, for more on this particular song, if you find that episode, we just rip into it because it does not belong on there. Yeah, it was uh, disc one track 27, I believe. Yeah, it's the final it's the final song on disc one because they put the stuff at the end of each disc that got in the through a loophole. So, but yeah, I'm only about halfway there with you guys on that song. I think it's perfectly mediocre. And like you said, it accidentally ended up on a box set alongside some of the greatest songs of all time because Paul Young decided to cover it and British people apparently loved it. But it's just completely out of its league on the same disc as Dancing in the Street and Uptight, Everything's All Right. Yeah, exactly. It suffers for that. Now, it feels weird saying that Paul Young did a better job with the song than Marvin Gaye did. But to me, at least, although not to everybody, apparently, the song works better this way to the extent that it's ever going to work. It's helped by Pino Palladino's spacey, squiggly, fretless bass part, which brings just something interesting to an arrangement that isn't super interesting overall. And it keeps the listeners on their toes. And Paul Young, for as briefly as he was a huge deal, he was a really good soul singer. I have no idea how this became a number one hit because it's not single material and it never was. But as a piece of art, as just a song, I like this record a lot. If wherever I lay my hat, that's my home has to exist. And that's a big if. It shouldn't be as an up-tempo, fake, cheery Motown song. It should be as a slow-burning soul song by one of the better singers of the era. Well, when I first heard this recording, I considered it a shameless ripoff of Marvin Gaye's sexual healing. Mm. Not necessarily the music, but the sound and feel, which, as we know, is enough for Gaye's estate to slither out of the wordwork and start filing bullshit copyright infringement suits as if they're friggin' Larrikin music publishers or something. <laughs> but once I picked up on the fact that it is actually a gay cover, I simply became baffled. If I thought Young was trying to be somehow clever or funny by dressing a cover song up as a different song by that same artist, maybe I'd give him a few points for misguided ambition, but I don't think that's the case. <laughs> so no points. <laughs> and Zero. regardless, yeah, regardless of motivation, it's just not a good song. As as Mike noted when Marvin's original showed up in our Motown number one series, the best that can be said about this song is that it gave the super furry animals a jumping off point for their delightful cartoon electronic tune, Wherever I Lay My Phone, That's My Home. I got a mobile phone. I got a mobile phone. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, this is mediocre. I personally kind of get a kick out of it because to me, uh, Paul Young sort of like Muppet soul vocals. They, they make the song sound like a prototype for Samuel T. Herring from the 2010 synth revival band Future Islands. <laughs> yeah, Future Islands are pretty ridiculous. I saw them live at the Pitchfork Music Festival in 2015 because, as Ben has said, I am a hipster. And, <laughs> and hearing stage presence is like watching your friend's geeky dad do the most energetic karaoke performance you've ever seen. And, he, and I say geeky dad, but he's a year younger than me, so I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> You're not a hipster. You like some songs that hipsters like. It's not the same thing. <laughs> no one calls anyone a hipster anymore anyway. We're using like warmed over slang from 10 years ago. 
<laughs> but yeah, I don't really have much to say about Paul Young. I just wanted to talk about Future Islands for a second. I like Future Islands. I'll stick up for Paul Young. I, I think he's legitimately good. Uh, I, this is not a great song, but it, it's a good record. And, and I think he acquits himself well. Paul Young acquitted. <laughs> the charges have been dropped. Yeah, so that's it for this round and this disc. So join us next time when we'll be cracking open the second LP of the inaugural Now compilation, including another classic soul cover, this time done by Tina Turner, more Kajagoogoo, this time without Lamal, and more UB40. <laughs> <laughs> Roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is comp. Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can hear back episodes of this series and our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com. And you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. This closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally composed by Andy Partridge. You can find Kenneth's music at bandcamp.com. Hopefully Andy Partridge isn't like the Marvin Gaye estate. Yeah, no, I don't think Andy Partridge goes on the internet anymore. It, make, it pisses him off too much to read anything. Editing and production is by Rich Bennell. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. If you think I'm cuddly and you want my company, come on, wifey, let me know. Oh!